This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, and then chapter 5, 1 through 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought their proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had a need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much.' And she said, "'Yes, for so much.' But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray together. Father, for the past year, we've, we've come each Sunday uh, to not only sing your praises, Lord, but also to look at your word. And we're so thankful that, that we have it. We're thankful that, uh, that, that uh, it comes with promises that say that as you read and meditate on it, even if you don't have all the answers, it still works and changes our heart. It molds us more and more into who you desire us to be. So, Father, we pray that as we uh, look at your word, as a young church, Lord, and we look at this young church in the book of Acts, Lord, we pray that you would teach us what it means to be the church that you would enlighten our eyes and open our eyes to see not only the beauty of, of being a part of a church community, Father, but also the beauty of the gospel that we need to be refreshed in every day. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, so as, as we mentioned earlier, this is, uh, this is one year for us here at City Church. It's been, a, it's been a great year. It's been an exciting year. It's been very cool to see God show up and do great things. But I don't want you to be mistaken in the thinking that it has been easy, because <laughs> it has not been easy. There have been challenges. There have been hardships. There have been difficulties. There have been challenges that have come without, that have been hard for us to negotiate and deal with and wonder what's the best course of action. There have been challenges that have happened within our community as well that have made things difficult. But despite all that, God showed up in really amazing ways. But one of the things that we continue to do as a young church is we continue to come back to this book of Acts. Because what it does is it teaches us, a young church trying to find its way, it teaches us what it means to be the church. But it also is a source of comfort. It's a source of comfort that some of the challenges that we deal with as a young church were the same challenges that they dealt with in the first century as well. Uh, Currently, I'm reading a book by Robert Wilkin called uh, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. I'm doing it because that's just what I like to do for fun. But it talks all about how uh, the Christians were viewed by uh, the Romans in the first century world. And what's remarkable to me whenever I think about the first century world and the rise of Christianity is really for the first 100 to 150 years after Jesus ascended back into heaven, Christianity was largely unknown. It was just a small blip on the radar of the Roman Empire and really of the first century world. And then at about 150 years in, it exploded. And and people were were converting to Christ all over the place. And it was beginning to not just be a blip on the radar, but it was beginning to change the entire fabric of the first century world. And it changed the entire fabric of the Roman Empire, which was the biggest and most powerful empire in the ancient world. Why was that happening? Why such power? And what we see from the book of Acts is it's because of the message of the gospel. That this message of the gospel that these apostles took to every person they knew was a message with incredible power. You see, Christianity wasn't just another association. It wasn't some union. It wasn't some club that people uh, joined or some affinity group. It was a movement of God through the instrument of the gospel that ended up changing the entire world. And the book of Acts powerfully records the first steps of Jesus' apostles as they carried this message out into the world. The book opens in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus ascending back into heaven. And he gives his disciples a mission. He says, you will be my witnesses. Spread this message of the gospel. And then he leaves them. He leaves them scared. He leaves them frightened. He leaves them wondering how are they going to ever accomplish this mission. But he promised them that the Holy Spirit would come and aid them in this mission. In Acts chapter 2, you see that Holy Spirit arriving. He shows up on the scene and amazing things happen and Peter begins preaching the message of the gospel and it says that 3,000 people were converted that day. See, before then, Christianity was localized to about 50 people and then in one day, 3,000 people are converted to Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3 tells us how Peter and John, two of those first disciples, went and had some miraculous powers to them. In the name of Jesus, they healed people who were lame and used that as an opportunity to share the gospel. And people were converted all over the place. 
But then the tone changes a little bit in Acts chapter 4. Because Peter and John are arrested. And what you see is that's just the beginning of what we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And that is that, that these first century believers are persecuted mightily for their faith. And it gets more and more intense as the book goes on. But Acts chapter 5, where we are right now, gives us a little window. There's, of course, things that are happening from the outside, but it gives us a little window on the interior life of this early community of believers. It shines a light on the intimacy that they had. And it tells us the story about something very beautiful that was happening in their community, but it also tells the story of an internal hardship that they had to deal with. It tells us first about this beautiful community of the church. It says in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There's something really remarkable going on in this interior life of these first century believers. If you go all the way back into the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 15, you'll read something really unique in the Old Testament. And it was God's design, it was His hope for His people that they would so radically care for one another that there was no one in their community that had any need whatsoever. God said that He he wanted His people to care so much about their societal life and societal justice that there would be no one who was poor in their midst. But of course, it never happened. The prophets all throughout the Old Testament talked about how this was God's desire for them, that there would be no poverty, that there would be no one needy amongst them, but they struggled to ever realize that dream. And of course, we know our own world now, where there are amazing pockets, even just here in our city, of incredible poverty, and everybody wonders if it will ever, ever get fixed. But verse 34 in our passage says this, There was not a needy person among them. You see, what's happening here is that in this little slice of Jesus' followers, and of this little slice in the ancient world, those dreams and visions that God had in the Old Testament were now being realized. Because Luke tells us about this beautiful love and unity that characterized God's people. They didn't consider their own gifts and their own possessions as their very own, but they considered them as belonging to the community as a whole. They didn't have to give their possessions away. They were under no compulsion to sell their property and donate it to everyone, but instead they did it willingly. And they did it joyfully. There was great joy in their midst because of it. Our passage tells us that they were passionate about the message of the gospel so passionate that they couldn't help but share it with everybody that was in their path. They didn't share the gospel out of duty. They didn't share it out of guilt. They didn't share it because they were manipulated to do so, but they did it because they couldn't help themselves. And it says in verse 33 that great grace was upon them all. Commentators have looked at this passage and they've wondered what exactly Luke means when he says great grace was upon them. 
Does he mean that God is, is giving them a special measure of grace that is unique to just them? Or is Luke saying that they exhibited a graciousness that uh, was unusual? And I think the answer is both. They were living in light of this incredible gift of God's grace. And because they were living in light of it, it translated or exhibited it itself in incredible graciousness to everyone who was around them. They were characterized by a radical unity and by a radical generosity. There's been a, a real interest in, in what's called Celtic spirituality that's been more popular in our culture nowadays. And the Celtic church, uh, if you've ever studied it, is a really remarkable church movement as the gospel kind of went into Scotland and Ireland in the ancient world. But one of the things that they talked about in Celtic spirituality was the idea of thin places. Someone did a, a New York Times article about it just two years ago. And, and what the idea of thin places means is that there are certain places in our world where it feels like the veil between heaven and earth is thin. Or it seems like there are places where heaven just seems to be embodied in ways that, that it's not in other places. You see, what Luke is describing in our passage about these first century believers is that they were actually experiencing a very small taste of heaven. They were experiencing firsthand an appetizer of the great feast that they were to have at one point in heaven. That they were experiencing a taste of God's kingdom, a kingdom of justice and peace, a kingdom of unity and love, and a kingdom where everyone is of one heart and one soul. And what it reminds us is that that is what we are to be as a community of believers. We are to be to our world a small taste of what heaven is going to be like. We are to be a picture. It's a dim one. It's an imperfect one for sure. But we are to be a picture to our culture in our world of what heaven is really going to be like. And because the first century church did that, because they were exhibiting heaven, people were drawn to them in droves, not just because of the power of their message, but they saw something in that first century community of believers that they wanted for themselves. They, small, they saw a small piece of heaven here on earth. You see, this is what the gospel does. It isn't just something we believe. It isn't just something we assent to mentally or understand but it's something that radically changes our conduct. So what Luke does is he tells us what the church looked like, and then he gives us a case study, two case studies, in fact, of what it looked like or what it practically uh, fleshed out to be. And the first case study is about a man named Barnabas. You see about him in the end of chapter 4. And it talks about how Barnabas was one of these guys. He was one of the guys who sold all of his possessions and, and laid it at the apostles' feet so that others who were needy could benefit from his generosity. And of course we know from later on in the church that Barnabas becomes uh, one of the most influential people in the ancient church, a traveling companion of Paul throughout the entire New Testament. But sadly, it's not the only case study that Luke shares with us. He tells us the story about Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. If you've been with us last week, we talked about the book of Proverbs, we talked about wisdom, and we talked about how wisdom is best exemplified in our speech. 
And wisdom is best exemplified in truthful words. Well, here we get a case study of the exact opposite of Ananias and Sapphira and their deceitfulness. It tells us that they decided to sell a piece of property because that's what everybody else seemed to be doing, but they didn't want to give all the money over to the church. They wanted to keep some of it for themselves. Now, there was nothing wrong with this. There was no requirement in the first century church that you had to sell everything. People were doing it freely. So Ananias and Sapphira were under no compulsion or requirement to do this. In fact, it was even okay for them to keep a portion of that money back for themselves if they so wanted to, but they chose to not do it that way. They wanted to be perceived as spiritual and as righteous as everyone else, so they lied about the amount of proceeds that they received because of the sell of the land. They wanted to be thought of as spiritual, so they perpetrated this deception. They perpetrated this lie. And they come before Peter, and somehow he knows immediately what they had done. He says, you've not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And verse 5 says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And the story tells us that young men came in and took the body and removed it from their presence. Then it goes on to tell us that about three hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes in and she does the very same thing and it has the very same effect on her as well. And Luke is very careful to say twice that great fear came upon the whole church and upon everyone who observed these things. Now, I'll be honest with you. These are the passages that preachers like to skip over and not preach sermons about. They're difficult passages. But if you're honest and you look through the scriptures, there are passages that are like this all over the place. Instances of God's judgment coming in swift and very powerful ways. And what's hard is when we look at it, we don't have all the answers. There are things, there are questions that we are left with whenever we read stories like this. There are things that we know, there are things that are revealed to us, but there are also things that are very secretive and things that we don't know. When we read a passage like this, we ask questions like, why would God choose to do this? Why would God choose to kill Ananias and Sapphira in judgment in the midst of everyone else? Why didn't he give them an opportunity like he does in so many other places to repent? Why doesn't he give them an opportunity to confess their sins and and be sorry for what they had done? He doesn't. Why We don't know why God used this instance to strike fear in the church. Does God really want the church to be afraid of him? We're left with all sorts of questions. We're left with mystery. We're left with really an inability to understand why God would do this, an inability to really figure it all out. We're left reminded of of a famous illustration that C.S. Lewis once used in his book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he talks about Aslan, the, the, the God figure in the story. And one of the characters asks, is Aslan safe? And another responds, of course he's not safe, but he's good. We're left with lots of questions as to why God would do it this way. But there are a few things that we do know that kind of can help us make sense of this story. One thing we know is that this time period in the book of Acts was a very unique time period. 
In some ways, it's good for us to look at it, but it's also good for us to look at it and understand that what we see here is not necessarily normative of all of church history. See, God is doing unique and special things here. He's pouring out His Spirit in miraculous ways. He's empowering people to speak in different languages and perform miracles. He's doing very unique things in the book of Acts to build His church. And there are principles in this book that are true for today. But there are also some things in this book that are very unique to God building His church in this unique time period. The other thing we can know is it really seems like God here is protecting the intimacy of this first community of believers. Those of you with kids know that when you first have a kid, you have to do a lot of things for them, right? When you have a baby, you have to feed them, you have to put them in bed, you have to do everything for them. When you have little kids, you have to tie their shoes, you have to strap them into car seats. And there are times where you have to protect them and protect their tenderness and their, their young age. So you protect them from certain things. And at some point, they grow up and the relationship changes. You can't protect them from anything anymore. And they just have to grow up. But that's what God seems to be doing in this story. You see, that this young church, this intimate baby church, is already starting to feel things from the outside. They're already starting to feel pressures from the outside, and that's just going to get worse. But now they're dealing with a very intense internal problem. And they're young, and they're tender. And God is passionate to preserve the integrity of this very young community. So he doesn't want to do anything to disturb this very beautiful thing that's happening. But of course, it's not normative for what you see in the church afterwards. What we also know about this is that when we look at this story, we're reminded that God's ways are not our ways. That sometimes He does things and He acts in ways that make us uncomfortable or surprise us or are different than what we expect. Anne Lamott famously said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Her point is, we can't make God into our own image. We can't pick and choose what we like about God over here and not talk about the things that we don't like him about Him. We can't choose to believe certain things about God and disregard others. If we did that, we'd just be creating our own God or we'd be creating God in our own image. We can't mold him into who we want him to be. We have to accept him for who he is. We have to take him for who he presents himself to be. So that's something we can know as well. But last and finally, we know about the gospel. And we know that God did not spare his very own son, but put his own judgment on him. See, this story is about as a story of judgment. It's a story about God coming and exercising judgment on Ananias and Sapphira in a very intense way. A way so intense we actually had to edit it out of the kid's story a little bit this morning, right? So we read it and we were surprised by it. But what we do know is that, yes, God did show up in judgment. But God showed up in his greatest act of judgment on his very own son, Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8 tells us, He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to be thought of as righteous, but they didn't want to pay the cost for that. You see, they had it all backwards. They took the matter of becoming righteous or the matter of becoming good into their own hands. They thought that if they were just righteous and good enough, then they would be thought of as spiritual and they would receive God's grace, but they had it backwards. What they didn't realize is that it was God's grace that actually motivates us to righteousness. See, the truth is we all, like Ananias, want to be thought of as good. We all want to be thought of as righteous. We all want to be thought of as holy. We all want God to accept us into his family. But the reality is we all, just like Ananias and Sapphira, deserve the judgment of God. For the, way that we, the ways that we've lived our lives, for the ways that we've rebelled against him. But what the gospel tells us is that the judgment that we deserved was actually put on Jesus at the cross. Because at the cross, the full judgment of God, the scriptures tell us, was poured into the death of his very own son, Jesus Christ. You see, we can't become righteous or good on our own. Our deeds don't measure up. We can't put it all together enough to earn God's favor. The cost is too great. So Christ suffered the cost on our behalf. He suffered on the cross so that you and I could be made right before God. He paid the cost so that you and I could be declared righteous. And what the gospel tells us is that the path to knowing him is not a path in which we try harder and harder and harder to earn his favor. It isn't about finding our goodness in our deeds or impressing others, whether we're really impressing them or whether our impressing is contrived like Ananias and Sapphira. The faith is all about finding our goodness in Jesus Christ who paid the cost for us. He suffered the judgment that you, so that you and I could experience his grace. But know that when you experience that grace, nothing stays the same. Everything changes. And your life begins to look like the life of these first century believers. Because what the gospel tells us is those who have experienced great grace end up exhibiting great grace to those in which they interact with.